Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, a mouth-watering weekly selection of some of the tastiest items from across our coverage. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And on your menu this week... Why the hometowns of African leaders are raking in Chinese aid. Berlin defends its most radical theatre. And a requiem for the playboy emperor. But first, the bull market in everything was our cover line this week. Asset prices are extraordinarily high across the board, from stocks to bonds to property to bitcoins. In a troubled world of trade tiffs and nuclear braggadocio, is it time to worry? No one would mistake the bloodless run-up in global stock markets, credit and property over the past eight years for a reprise of the Roaring Twenties, or even an echo of the dot-com mania of the late 1990s. Yet only at the peak of those two bubbles has America's S&P 500 been higher, as a multiple of earnings measured over a ten-year cycle. Rarely have creditors demanded so little insurance against default, even on the riskiest junk bonds. And rarely have property prices around the world towered so high. The world is in the throes of a bull market in just about everything. Sounds promising, so where's the beef? There are two immediate reasons to worry. First, markets have been steadily rising against a backdrop of extraordinarily loose monetary policy. If today's asset prices have been propped up by central bank largesse, its end could prompt a big correction. Second, signs are appearing that fund managers, desperate for higher yields, are becoming increasingly incautious. Consider, for instance, investors' recent willingness to buy euro bonds issued by Iraq, Ukraine and Egypt at yields of around 7%. Asset prices are continuing to rise, in part in response to an improving world economy. More significant still is the behaviour of long-term interest rates. They have fallen steadily since the 1980s and remain close to historic lows. But investors who assume this time might be different are playing with fire, we warned. Many hazards could derail the economy and financial markets, from a debt crisis in China to an American-led trade war or an outbreak of fighting on the Korean peninsula. And when the next recession comes, policymakers have less fiscal and monetary ammunition to fight it than they had in previous downturns. Prudence, therefore, suggests caution. While the rise and rise of asset prices may be too good to be true, the future looks bright for the birthplaces of some African leaders. An article in our Middle East and Africa section explained that when it comes to Chinese aid, it seems there's no place like home. In 2010, young Jie Che, then China's foreign minister, visited Yoni, a village in Sierra Leone. Mr Young had a job to do hand over a fancy new school financed by Chinese aid to the local authorities. Sierra Leone certainly needed more schools, 
but some wondered why the Chinese chose the middle of the bush for the project. It just so happens that Yoni is the home village of Ernest Bai Karoma, Sierra Leone's president. A curious coincidence, certainly, but it's been hard to say whether anything sinister is going on. Scholars have long had a hunch that Chinese aid could be more easily manipulated than the Western sort, which often comes with strings attached. A Chinese white paper in 2014 stated that the government would not impose any political conditions on countries asking for help. The Commerce Ministry, China's lead aid agency, says most projects are initiated by recipient states. This approach makes aid more vulnerable to misuse by local leaders, say critics. Now, though, data analysis is beginning to lift the veil. China regularly blends aid with commercial loans, confusing researchers. Since 2013, however, Aid Data, a research lab based at the College of William and Mary in America, has scanned through media reports to categorise Chinese giving, making it easier to compare apples with apples. And as it turns out, Chinese apples have tended to fall close around the presidential tree. The pundits show that China's official transfers to a leader's birth region nearly triple after he or she assumes power. They got similar results when looking at the birthplaces of presidential spouses. For more on apples and their allotments, head to our Middle East and Africa section. After the ravages of Hurricane Maria, Puerto Rico has been left in a sorry state and sorely in need of aid itself. But in the wake of the storm, destruction and ensuing confusion has hindered that process. Our correspondent Sarah Maslin travelled to the Caribbean island this week and had this report for our foreign affairs podcast, The Week Ahead. We're just showing up to Aníbal's house. We climb up the stairs to the second floor where his roof has been stripped off his house and when I asked him where the roof is now, he said, it's in the mountains somewhere. There's also doors missing. The paint is stripped from the walls. Uh, Some of the window panes have been peeled away. All of the tiles in the bathroom are are shattered uh, in a pile in, in the middle of the bathroom. It's going to be a while until this, this house looks the way that it did two weeks ago. The Week Ahead is available each Friday through iTunes or your chosen podcast app, so do download it to hear more. Well, back in Blighty, it was a tempestuous week for Britain's Conservative Party. Prime Minister Theresa May is still at the helm of the ship, sailing straight into the stormy realms of Brexit. I travelled to the party conference this week in Manchester for a special episode of The Economist Asks, and it seemed that the waters were particularly choppy. And it wasn't going to be Theresa's day. A prankster handed her a P45, the form used to terminate employment in Britain. He cheekily claimed it was from Boris Johnson, the Foreign Secretary, but Theresa May bounced back quite well. I was, a, I was about to talk about somebody I'd like to give a P45 to, and that's Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. She'd already had unscheduled interruptions from her foreign secretary and possibly a pretender to her crown in Boris Johnson. Bojo wasn't underselling Britain after Brexit and he certainly wasn't underselling himself. 
We are not the lion. We do not claim, like some others, to be the lion. That role is played by the people of this country. From the croaky melodrama of the Tory conference, we turn to Berlin, where a row has been escalating over the future of Germany's most radical theatre. When is a sit-in not a sit-in? When it's a transmedia theatre performance, of course. Need a little help with that? An article in our Europe section explained. Doch Kunst, or Art After All, read the blue banner tagged to the facade of the Volksbühne, a theatre in central Berlin. It was put up by a group of left-wing activists who occupied the building in late September. They want the theatre to be managed by a collective. The protesters believe their affordable and creative city is being spoiled by callous cultural policies, encouraging gentrification and too many tourists. At the centre of the row is Chris Dirkon, a Belgian manager who ran London's Tate Modern Museum before taking over as artistic director of the Volksbühne, or People's Stage, this season. The appointment, announced in the spring of 2015, ousted Frank Kastorf, a famous East German director who had led the theatre to international renown with politically charged productions and generous state subsidies. While some hope that Mr Durkon brings a cosmopolitan breath of fresh air, many worry that a mainstream gallery manager can know little about life at the raw edges of Berlin's avant-garde. The Volksbühne has taken on a symbolic role in a wider debate over the relationship between art, globalisation and the future of the city. There is no sign that things will get less dramatic. After talks failed, the activists were offered rooms for debates and performances, the occupiers were kicked out by the police. The actors have returned to rehearsals. The activists have shifted their revolution to the square just outside. There they host talks and performances and vow to continue their fight. Over 40,000 people have signed a petition asking Berlin's mayor to renegotiate the theatre's future. The next act has begun. And as Bertolt Brecht once put it, der Vorhand zu und alle Fragen auf. The curtain down and all questions still open. With that still developing, we turn to the evolution of language itself. Writing in the pages of our books and art section this week, our linguistic guru, Johnson, ruminated on a new book, suggesting that language is not just 200,000 years old, but almost 2 million a colossal claim, and many experts furiously disagree. So what's the verdict? Speech leaves no fossils, so paleoanthropologists have no direct evidence for the emergence of the quintessential human trait, language. Of course, that hasn't stopped scholars from grappling with the problem, yet wide consensus remains as elusive as the evidence itself. On one thing, at least, most agree. Though animals communicate, only humans have true language, with the power to organise complex thoughts into a string of words, often about absent or abstract things. And most scholars also reckon that Homo sapiens is the only species ever to have had such language. They think it must have emerged somewhere between 200,000 and 50,000 years ago. Now one man, Daniel Everett, has made his stand against the crowd. He thinks that Homo erectus, Homo sapiens' predecessor, had something that could be called language, and not just grunting proto-speech. This would make language not 200,000 years old, but something like 1.9 million. A little evolutionary background is perhaps needed. Noam Chomsky has proposed that one human developed, through one genetic mutation, 
an ability called merge about 50,000 years ago. Merge allows two linguistic units to be joined into a single one, such as a complex noun phrase, the house and the hill, becoming the house on the hill, or a complex sentence, Sally loves Lucy, becoming part of Bill knows that Sally loves Lucy. And the mind can merge beyond this, manipulating these new units to create yet more complex ones. This, called recursion, is what Mr Chomsky calls the language faculty narrowly defined. And that is what Mr Everett thinks is unnecessary. Homo erectus, he thinks, probably really did talk something like me, Tarzan, you, Jane, but with this he could do quite a lot. When Homo erectus began using several symbols one after the other in a more predictable pattern, but not yet recursively, Mr Everett thinks he could be said to be using human language. The stakes are high, and not just for linguists. If language is an invention relying on general-purpose parts of humans' brains in interaction with local culture over a million-plus years, then human languages may be rather different from each other and more continuous with the abilities of animals and distant ancestors. The argument isn't just about language, but about human nature. Our final taste from this week's issue is an obituary of a man with an undoubtedly distinctive human nature, the founder and face of the Playboy empire, Hugh Hefner. Whenever Hugh Hefner mentioned that his strict Methodist mother had wanted him to be a missionary, he got a big laugh. He got a bigger one when he said he answered, Mum, I was. And in some senses, he was right. As the man who brought sexual liberation to America in the form of clubs, casinos, bunny girls and naked centrefolds, he too was a preacher and a prophet. His church pamphlet was Playboy magazine, which pushed his personal and popular philosophy. Sex was fun. Whether it was morally good or bad wasn't the point. The morality depended on the situation. All that stuff aside, sex was also the beginning of civilization, the life force. It should be celebrated. Yet America had swarmed since its foundation with censors, prigs, prudes and blue noses intent on sexual repression. To keep down a natural drive led to deviancy and crime, even witch burnings, even mass madness, at least as he understood Cotton Mather or Catholic medieval Europe. And it was tyranny, pure and simple. His crusade certainly made him a divisive figure. To many he was a priapic horror, but to himself he was a romantic. Playboy was really a boy-girl romance magazine. The first pin-ups he fell for at 14 were tasteful drawings of nudes from a squire. But his career was a quest for beauty as well as freedom, he claimed. And Marilyn gloriously topped and tailed it. He never met her or paid her for those photographs, but he forked out $75,000 to get the crypt in Woodlawn right beside hers. To spend eternity together was the sweetest thought, and she, of course, would feel the same. Gentlemen, gentlewomen, feel free to differ. That's the end of this week's Tasting Menu. Don't forget you can read all of the articles we've mentioned in this week's issue, and you can find our other podcasts online too. Do keep sending us your feedback by email, radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.